We're going to continue our series this morning, <clears throat> if the Lord willing. This is week five in our 16-week series in the study through Paul's epistle to the church in Philippi, the book called Philemon's, Philippians. <laughs> I was thinking about another book. Today we're going to read verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2 of Philippians, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to continue this conversation that the apostle started by writing to a church that he loves dearly, the first church he ever planted in what would be called Europe today. And he writes to them a letter that is the most spirited, most joyful, most happy letter that he writes, and he writes it from prison. In the first chapter, he spent most of that time having a conversation with the people of that church about the preeminence of Christ. You remember, he taught us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 2, and where we're headed for the next several weeks, is a shift in the tenor and tone of the letter to focus less on Jesus, though we'll talk about Jesus almost all day, but also about the us of the congregation. What he's done in the first chapter is to say, let me tell you about Jesus. And then he says, now let me tell you about you. I'm going to pick up chapter 2, verse 1. It reads like this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The title of today's message is, How Low Can You Go? How low can you go? Let's pray over this word. Heavenly Father, this is your word, eternal, living, and active. Pierce us. Amen. When I was a kid, Skate City was life. Amen? Our, our middle school and then our high school would organize field trips to Skate City. And every time I was like, yes. This is it. I grew up playing hockey, and so going to Skate City was an opportunity to just show off. Do you know what I mean? Skate City was this wonder. If you don't know, let me fill you out for it. It's an indoor roller rink with an accompanying arcade and all of the free terrible food that a 13-year-old can eat with the $7 his mother gave him. 
And I remember loving to go to Skate City. I mean, I was a good skater, so I enjoyed being out there and skating. But I, I just loved, like, you know, it was just, I mean, you talk about social. It was as good as it gets. And the best part was that when my school would organize a trip to Skate City, we weren't the only school there, right? So you get to see and meet people from all different schools and all over the city. In fact, our Skate City was in North Glen, and I grew up in Broomfield. So it was a trek. And we'd meet other kids, and I just, I mean, I loved going to Skate City. Even though the carpet was sticky and the bathrooms were terrible, right? And the DJ was always like, all right, coming up next. <laughs> I loved when they would do open skate, and you'd get to grab a girl's hand and, you know, show off a little bit. I would skate backwards just to really lay it down. It was at Skate City that I first discovered um, that teenagers were kissing. I was 11 in sixth grade when we went, and I saw two teenagers, high schoolers, French kissing. And I was like, that is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. After open skate, they'd also do the games. You know, they'd do like the racist. Do you remember the racist? And they'd, they'd bring people out. All right, everybody, all the boys from 8 to 12, you know. And you'd get out there and you'd race like crazy. I used to love those. And you'd watch the older folks skate. And I just, I mean, there was just something about Skate City. My favorite part about Skate City was actually the only thing that I never participated in. It was, it was the limbo. Do you remember Skate City limbo? That was the fun part. I loved limbo. But I didn't participate in the limbo because I, I, I tried it once and, and I fell. And my 12-year-old ego could not handle that, right? Not in front of all those people, right? So I was like, from now on, I'm just going to be the racing guy. I'm not going to be the limbo guy. But I loved limbo. They'd play the song. How low can you go? Can you go so low? You know what I'm talking about? I just loved it. And the best part about limbo was this. It, it, was, it was really the one activity that showcased the actual skaters. You see, open skate was from all, for all of us, Right? And the, and, and the races were, were for the reckless, let's be honest. But the limbo was a test of skill. It demonstrated for those of us who were watching who really had a mastery over their ability to skate. And the question was, how low can you go? The lower they went, the more you knew that they had full muscle memory and had practiced and knew what it meant to be a real skater. And the same is true of the Christian life. Lots of us Christians, we just love the social aspect. Amen? Amen. Some of us just like the party. And you know what? That's a pretty good place to start, actually. Loving the fellowship is a wonderful place to start. And if it's the thing that invites you here, well, good. Some of us Christians, we love the food bar. I mean, we love the donuts and today's hand-baked goodies from Mama Kay. Can we thank God for her? And for some of us, that's what brings you to church. And you know what? If it gets you in the door, Amen. She's like, do people like them? I'm like, people love them. Please. Some of us like to go fast as Christians. We want to know how quickly we can be promoted and seen. But few of us have really accepted the invitation to master the Christian journey 
So when Jesus asks the question, how low can you go? Your answer is all the way down low. And that is the invitation for believers. Today we're going to talk about this conversation about going low. Really, I'm going to hit on three main topics. I'm going to talk about service. Amen? I'm going to talk about the engine behind service, which is submission. Amen? And I'm going to talk about the ultimate destination for the life of a Christian, which is sacrifice. The three are imperative, are required, and are beautiful in the body of believers. Now, Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi, and he writes to encourage them. He writes to thank them. He writes to tell them just how good things are, but he also writes to them because there is some division within the church in Philippi. He writes because currently in this church, there's been a disagreement inside between two women, and there's been some false teaching from the outside coming in. And so when Paul writes to them, he writes to give them good feelings, but also to say, be careful because there's division coming your way. I love that the Apostle Paul was always focused on unity. We should all be so focused on unity. Paul writes to them and he says, I know that there's disunity going on right now and I want to encourage you to give birth to a new sense of unity amongst, amongst one another. And the way that he instructs them to do that is through service. I might tell you just like this, our unity is birthed, birthed in service. The way that we grow together is by serving one another. I want to recap for you the first four verses here. Paul says, so if there's been any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, or you might say encouragement from the Spirit, or any affection or any sympathy, please, and he writes to them as a pastor, complete my joy as your spiritual father and as your leader. Please complete my joy by being of the same mind. What he's saying in this moment is, if you've gotten any goodness from this church, replicate it. He is saying in this moment, there is goodness that happens amongst us, right? There's good days. There are wonderful times of encouragement and growth, and you find a home and a place, and you have people around you who hold you accountable, but also hold you to a higher standard. If you've ever been in this fellowship and found benefit, then be the kind of Christian who's committed to being of benefit to others for the same purpose. To put a fine point on it, he might say, don't be so selfish that you come and take, take, take. You better start to give, give, give. What he's doing in this moment is trying to remind them just how many good things happen in the church. And he ties the reciprocity of what we receive with what we should be giving to the concept of having the same mind. And he goes on here and in verse 5 to say, it is the mind of Christ that I'm talking about. I want you to have the same mind, but not share one mob mentality or way of thinking that's unique to you. The mind I want you to have is the thoughts and mind of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying in that moment right there is, it's available to you. Read verse 5. He says, you can have the mind of Christ. It's been made open and receivable to you by Christ himself. So that when you receive goodness from somebody, you don't just repay goodness because you owe it. You repay goodness because Jesus would repay goodness. 
And so I want you to, for a moment to think about some of the good things that have come your way by being a part of the fellowship of believers. I think it's important that we all do this as believers, is to recount the ways in which God is good. And you and I should all know that God is good through God's people. He, did you know this? Did you know that right now in this room, you are his first choice to bless someone else in this room? Did you know that? Right now there's somebody in desperate need of a word of encouragement, in desperate need of a shoulder to cry on, in desperate need of an understanding ear and heart that might say, I know it looks hard, but God's got a way, and his choice to do that for them is you. In fact, that might even be why you made it today through the snow. You had every reason not to come to church today, amen? I woke up at 2, I told the team, I woke up at 2, and I saw the snow, and I was like, well, we're canceling church. <laughs> and I know that some of you woke up this morning, you saw the snow, and you're like, I'm not going to church. <laughs> Show of hands. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Let's be honest. Some of us saw the elements and thought, you know what? I mean, I was there last week. It's not that good, you know? But how many of you right now in this room can think that you thought that and then all of the, also know that there was like an urging in your heart to say, nah. Did you ha anybody have that today where the enemy said don't, but the Holy Spirit said yes? Amen. Look at all of you. Guess what? Those of you with your hand raised are here by design for us. Each one of you has a role to play. So when we do pre-service rally, when I gather all of the volunteers, and if you're not one yet, please join. It's awesome. When I gather all of the team before service, one of the things that I encourage them to do is to connect intimately with every new person that they meet. I don't teach our team to be friendly. I teach them to be earnest. This is fine. You've been to a lot of church. Hi! They have a sign. And you're like, that lady is on 12. Good grief. <laughs> That's fine. It's good to have joy and excitement and exuberance around meeting people. But if you just have joy and exuberance around the meeting, but never the walking, never the living, never the sharing, never the communion, never the fellowship, then what you're really doing is just a customer service rep. And God called us to be deeper in our relationship. Amen. So I teach our team, when you see somebody, if they look low, lift them up. If you see somebody new, learn their name and hug them. That's why we can do church in such a bizarre, unlikely place and still be so sticky and nearly full on a snow day. Amen? Your pastor's not fooled that it's because he's a good preacher. It's because we love each other. Amen? Amen. This is us. And Paul says, if there's been any goodness to you, Share it back with us. And I love the way that he continues this conversation. In verse 3, he puts a real clear skin on it. He says this right here in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility is a really hard thing to do. Uh, most of us are, are humble after uh, we've been hum humbled. Amen? 
Isn't it weird how you just have such a tender heart after you've been embarrassed? <laughs> You're just so gentle with people after you put your foot in your mouth. What Paul writes to us in this moment, as he says, um, be reciprocal, but here's how. Put everyone above you. This is the call to humility. Now, I want you to understand truly what humility really is. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Have you heard this? It's not thinking low of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It means my focus is on us over the me. And he uses this word here that, that you would so easily jump over if you didn't really try to jump into the text. He says, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. He says, um, never do anything to put yourself first. I love that he uses the word ambition. When I was interviewing to be a church planter with our covering organization, Brave, um, they do this profile where they try to figure out if you have like this series of psychological, tra it's, like, it's like astronaut training now that I think about it. Can you survive in outer space is the question they ask. They do this series of tests to make sure to find out what you're made of, what kind of a leader you are, and whether or not you can weather the storms that come from planting a church. There was no chapter on the COVID pandemic. However, one of the parts of that process was outlining your ambitions. And I remember, you know, they give you, you know, you've done this before where somebody says, like, tell us your goals, Right? And I remember reading it, and I just, there's something about that word ambition. You know, it is part and parcel to the United States of America that each one of you should have ambition. I mean, we're taught that from an early age. What do you want to be when you grow up, right? And for many children, it's a nearly insurmountable question. And even when they ask it, sometimes the adults that ask them say, nah, that's not enough. What else do you want to be? We challenge our children to dream big. And if we think their dream is too small, we say, you need more ambition. And Paul says, you need no ambition. He says, do nothing. From selfish ambition, the original translation in this conversation is the word, ready, just ambition. He says, don't do anything birthed out of your own desire to be in front. And he says, or out of conceit. And what he's doing in this moment right now is really hitting on the one thing that will prevent each and every one of us from answering the call to humility, which is pride. Pride, the ability to be seen, to be known, to be recognized, to win, to receive, to get. Listening to a radio story this week, there's an interview with, um, there's a podcast I listen to all the time, and, and, um, and, and, the, and the host was interviewing a woman who had had a terrible relationship with her mother over time, abusive psychologically and physically. And then as, as the woman grew up and healed, amen, 
she found out that her mother, who she was estranged from for nearly 30 years, had grown ill and suffered from dementia and had been placed in a home. And so this daughter went to retrieve her mother to bring her home to care for her in her final days. And the podcast host said, what did you get out of that? And the woman said, nothing. Why would I need to get something out of it? And I remember the podcast host, I, I wish I could have seen his face, but you could hear in his voice that he was embarrassed for having asked a question that is so ingrained in the human experience here in North America, which is, what's in it for me? Paul says, that wasn't just true for America. That was true then, too. It is human nature to want to elevate self and to figure out, hey, uh, if I'm called to service, <laughs> what do I get? It is human nature for us to live in pride, to elevate self. Paul says, it's important that we don't put ourselves first. Now, it's interesting to note here that he's not saying that you don't care for yourself. Amen? This isn't some martyrdom. This isn't woe is me Christianity that says I only care for other people. And look at how pious I am for being so selfless. Did you know that too is a form of selfishness? Jesus says, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Everything that you do, do it so that your father sees and your father alone. But Paul's writing to say, don't not take care of yourself, but just don't put yourself first. If it's true that Jesus says, consider the birds of the air that neither reap nor sow nor store grain in barns, and yet your father in heaven takes care of them, then if that's true for them, it's true for you. So you don't need to worry about you as much as you worry about you. He says, I put you next to them so you could help worry about them. Hear me today. This is the first part of this push. This is a conversation around service. This is the invitation that if you really want to see unity in the fellowship, if you really want to grow, if you want your small group to be something that is eternal that you can tell your friends about, you don't like coming to church, you should come to my small group. Barbecue's good, conversation is good. If you want something good like that, unity like that, that's beautiful, it's birthed in service. And that's our first push, help other people first. Amen. And he says you should have the mind of Christ. You should be like Christ. You might ask yourself, okay, well, I, I'm going to need some instructions. <laughs> How do I be like Christ? Like, what is that really like? Verse 5, he makes this transition here. And what I might just remind you is this. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Verse 5, he says this. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. No, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Hmm. We... Uh, We'll never know the distance that Jesus traveled from where he rightly belongs at the right hand of the Father from before the world began 
to where he humbled himself to at the point of death on a cross. We, we only have that much of the picture. You see, you and I have no idea just how majestic and glory-filled Jesus was in his true God form. We have no idea what it will be like to stand before the throne of grace, watching cherubim fly around the head of the Father while smoke fills the room and the pillars shake and his robe fills the temple. We will never know what it's like until the day we arrive to know just how good and mighty and powerful God is and Jesus is God. Make no mistake, he is not a, a secondary option. Jesus is not plan B. He's not just a man. He's not just the son. The Godhead is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was and is and always will be. To him and through him and in him were all things made. He is so high and lifted up that you and I will never be able to see him lest he wrap himself in flesh. And so when we read that he became a man and then died, our experience is like blinders on a racehorse. We only see what we know. So Paul has to make it clear. He says, though he was God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What he's saying in this moment, the Apostle Paul is writing it like this, plain and simple. He says, though he was God, he didn't take advantage of the fact that he was God. You ever think about this? What it really must have been like for Jesus to be in the flesh around people like us? I mean, think about it, right? You read it, and he's so sweet, right? Even when he's angry, it's like not very mean. And I'm thankful that Jesus lived a sinless life. <laughs> Because if he was like me, he would be rude or frustrated. Think how many times that the disciples have seen him work miracles. Time and time again, these men who have walked away from everything only to watch Jesus manifest miracle and sign and wonder and healing and do things no one has ever done. And then the next day, forget it all and get nervous in their faith and sink and run and fear and deny. And the only thing he says is, oh, ye of little faith. Right? How many of you would have had stronger words? <laughs> Shorter patience. At no point does he turn to the disciples and go, you fools. <laughs> I'm God. Just shut up and do what I tell you to do. He never does that. He's so gentle. And Paul writes that he is God. But he doesn't leverage that because he submitted to the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that God himself would be the sacrifice for your sin. And so the Bible says that Jesus comes and he empties himself, meaning that he takes all of his divinity that can be seen 
and he lays it aside. Now hear me, I am not saying that he divides himself and becomes only man. No, he is both man and God at the same time, amen? He's man in the flesh and still God on the inside and he's both perfect and in harmony. But Paul writes that he empties himself, meaning he sort of takes everything out of his pocket. You know, at the end of the day, when you sort of take everything out and lay it there, and this is you in your perfect form, but that's all the things that you usually use. What he does is he shows up and he gets rid of all the things that might identify him as God and puts on flesh so that he can perfectly and accurately experience what you and I have experienced. I'd say it like this. The creator became creature. What was that? What was that like for Jesus for a minute? Can you imagine this? I mean, Jesus, who was there when the Father said, let there be light, which meant let there be daybreak, which was what Jesus said about himself in John 8, 12. He said, I am the daybreak. Jesus, who was there before the world was framed, who isn't, wasn't, always, were, will be, who, who, who was instrumental in the creation of all things, at one point stepped out of himself and stepped into the painting that he painted, only to walk around in a world he created. Can you see that in your mind? To walk amongst those he made manifest by blowing the breath of life into the dust of the earth. Only to walk with them but also be wrapped in the same dust and filled with the same breath. He was and is and always will be. And for that moment, he was right there with them. You see that? And then it says, he was so submitted that he became obedient. See, now you miss this if you, if you forget. That he's the one that made all the rules. You see, Jesus is God, and so he sets forth the commands and laws of the world. What he says is true the moment he says it. And when he becomes man in the world, then he then obeys his own plans. And it says he becomes obedient even to the point of death. Now don't miss this either because in him is life. He is the source of all life. When he breathes, he gives life. It is impossible that he would be anything other than alive. He makes all things new and brings dead things to life. And yet he is so submitted to the will of the Father that he dies. And then further, he says, and death even on a cross. Now you must remember that Deuteronomy chapter 20 tells us that death on a cross is an accursed death reserved only for the worst of the worst. The death on the cross is bloody, it is tragic, it is ugly, it is disgusting, and it is so offensive to your senses that you, if you were to stumble upon a crucifixion, would avert your eyes and flee from the scene. It is devastating to the psyche that someone might see it. And in Roman times, when someone was executed by crucifixion, it was only those who deserved the very worst. And Jesus obeyed for that. He lived obediently. 
and he served sacrificially. Nothing was beneath Jesus. Now, why was Jesus able to serve like that? Simple answer is this. Jesus knew exactly who Jesus was. Jesus knows who he is, fully confident in his identity. And I might turn it to you and say it like this. When you really know who you are, service is never beneath you. One of the reasons that most of us don't serve is we're afraid that if people see me picking up trash, they might think I'm the trash guy and not know how great I am. Did you know that? One of the things that holds you back from selfless service, from being of value to people without thanks or recognition, is that you desperately thank, you desperately crave recognition. That's the truth. Most of us want some level of identity or confirmation about who we are by other people. So we only choose to do the things that will applaud us or at least confirm who we think we are. Everybody wants to be the pastor. Why he stand up there for 45 minutes every Sunday and just talk, 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 talk? I can do that. No one wants to be the janitor. What if people see me doing that? They'll think that's all I am. What would it have been like if Jesus had the same thought process that you did? What if in the Garden of Gethsemane the prayer was, I don't want to die on a cross. They'll think I'm a criminal. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What, what Paul is doing in this moment is he's trying to paint a picture for us of the way in which Jesus always seeks to get low. He sacrifices, he serves, he does everything he can to put others first and obey to the end every chance he gets. And Paul says, if you really want to be like Jesus, and if you're a Christian, that should be it, then that should be your roadmap to life. It should be this, hey, where am I needed, not where will I be seen? That sounds like a hard job. I'm in. It's going to, hey, it's going to be long hours. I'm in. It's going to be an early morning. I'm in. People will, uh, will maybe dis be disrespectful to you. I'm, I'm in. I want you to think about all the times that Jesus could have, should have, if he were you and I, probably would have walked away from the mission of the Father. Could it have been when they doubted him every single time he told them what he was called to do? Could it have been when the religious leaders of the day criticized him or called him names? Could it have been when his own disciples fell asleep while he was praying? Could it have been when his own disciples said, can you put us in a place of honor? Could it have been when Peter denied him? Could it have been when his family hated him, when they kicked him out of Nazareth? Could it have been when they put a crown of thorns on his head? Could it have been when they mocked him? Can you consider for a moment that they mocked Jesus before his death any one of us would have run and Jesus said this is the plan that I might be brought low ready so that you might be lifted up the theologian Dr. J.H. Jowett recounts the story of a missions trip that he was on in East Asia and how he was walking through the bazaar 
the outdoor market of the town in which he was called to minister. And he came upon a small religious shop, really just a vendor's stall in the bazaar. And at the, above, uh, at the top of the stall, a, a crudely painted sign said, Cheap Crosses. And he looked into the stall and it was filled with small, cheaply made wooden crosses for the newly converted that they might wear. And the theologian saw the sign, cheap crosses, and in his heart he said, that is what every Christian is searching for. We all want a cheap cross. He goes on to say, truth of the matter is, is that ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Better yet, to put Jesus in the mix, if you want the blessing, you have to have the bleeding. So when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he says, do nothing with selfish ambition or from conceit, but do everything like Jesus, which is to bring yourself low that others might be served and lifted up. He makes a call to Christianity that most of us never want to answer. If I really told you what Jesus was calling you to, you might run. It is not attendance. It is not just reading. It's not just prayer. It's not just giving. It is not the spiritual disciplines that you are called to, and then that's the end game. Ready? That's the starting line. True Christian living means to give of all of yourself, day in and day out. That's why Jesus says, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Your life, ready, should be a challenge as a Christian. I joke all the time and say when people get saved, they think everything's going to get better now, Pastor, right? And I'm like, no, it'll be still hard. You'll have challenges. I don't tell them, no, it actually should get way harder. You should get real serious about this thing. You should cast aside anything that is unlike Christ. You should make it your mission that you put other people first and that you lead and that you bleed and that you love and that you give and that you live in such a fashion that when people see you, they literally see the mirror image of Christ that you might be like the martyrs and give your whole life, both the living days and the day of your death so that people would see this must matter because they're willing to give and die for this thing. That's what Christian living is like. It is not make me feel good so I have a better week. It's going to cost you something. It cost him something. You said, Pastor, hold up, man. I drove through the snow. I want to be encouraged. Good grief. I-25 was hard. Be nice to me. Here's your encouragement. You ready? Verses 9 through 11, therefore, after Jesus did all that he did for you and for I, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords to the glory of God the Father. Here's your ending conversation. Glory falls on the humble. Glory 
always in this kingdom falls on the humble. You see, in the kingdoms of the world, glory is made manifest and only reserved for those who would puff themselves up, who would be shined upon and build infrastructure and systems that would make them be seen and high and lifted up. But the kingdom of God, Watchman Nee said, is inverted. The way up is to go down. And in God's kingdom, glory always falls on the humble. John the Baptist knew this in John chapter 3, verse 30. He said to his disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. That is the only way that this works. If I walk in parallel, I walk in competition with Jesus. If I want Jesus to get glory while I also get recognition, he will not share. He is a jealous God. He must go up and I must go down. That's why when the disciples said, hey, how do we get recognition? Jesus tells them in Matthew 20, the last shall be first, and the first, they will be last. I love this conversation at the end here because what Paul is trying to do is remind us that Jesus really knew who he was. Not defined, not defined by his experience or his mission or his circumstances with the time he spent with believers here on earth. No, by the true identity of who he was and made himself to be forever. God's glory always shines on Jesus. And Jesus went low. So when you go low, you look most like Jesus. Straight up. Ready? This time that I spend on this stage with these lights talking to you is for most of you the only time you see me at my job. Right? And most of us will believe that this is what the pastor does. He must speak nonstop. And the Lord must shoot lightning of wisdom down to his head. And everywhere he goes, he just talks. And everybody that meets him goes, wow, he's such a wise man. He's such a sage. You might think that it's just pearls of wisdom that pour out of my mouth. <laughs> Most of you are like, I never thought that once, man. <laughs> my wife does. Good for me to have a cheerleader. Amen. You might mistake the role of some people who are seen in the kingdom as being the place that they've always been. But my week spent working, this is about 4% of what I do. This is it. Most of my time is spent doing things you don't want to do. I don't have this position because I earned it. I don't have this, this position because I deserve it. The Bible tells us that he chooses the foolish to confound the wise. <laughs> Amen? Paul said he came to seek and save sinners, of which I'm the worst. Read any good preacher, and they'll tell you. <laughs> it's not, you know, no, man, I have, I have as much idea what I'm doing up here as you do. But he called me to do this. And this is the place that I'll serve. And if he calls me away from this, I'll serve there too. You see, we should all have a heart to do the worst job imaginable. 
Let me flip it. Ready? The moment you have a heart to do the worst, God gives you his very best. This only comes because I don't care where he puts me. And if you don't care where he puts you, then he can put you right where he needs you. And then all of his glory flows through you. So that when Paul says, if there be any encouragement, any love, any affection, fulfill my joy by being of the same mind. You'll be in perfect position to reciprocate what God has done for you, through you. The question I'd ask you today is, how low can you go? Better yet, let's ask this. How much of what you do is defined and driven by how high you can be? How many of you have taken a position, considered serving, gotten dressed so that you could be seen as something elevated when Jesus says, go low? Church, I want to challenge you in this season. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. Uh. Don't be, um, don't be a Christian by label. Don't, don't be a Christian by culture. Ready? Don't be a cool Christian. Stop that. Don't be a Christian because you're supposed to be a Christian. Don't be a Christian because I figured that's what I was supposed to do. Don't even worry about being called a Christian. Be a living sacrifice. That's what this is really about. Be a living sacrifice. So when people say, what's your religion? They've already seen you serve and love so good. It's really a rhetorical question. Please, don't be Christian. Be like Christ. Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, our challenge is clearly outlined from the apostle is that this might mean more to us than it means right now. There's not one of us in this room here today that's fulfilling this call to live without selfish ambition. There's not one of us here that's putting others first every day, day in and day out. There's not one of us here who's emptied ourselves. There's not one of us here who's obedient to the point of death. There's not one of us here who is living like Christ has called us to live and is modeled. And yet the call is clear to live just like that. So Father, today we hear your word, but for many of us, the divide between your spoken word and our lived experience feels insurmountable. And God, I'm just asking that by grace you bridge the gap. I wish that you'd burn a fire in our heart that said, I am sick and tired of playing my faith. My attendance, so what? Finish my reading plan, so what? I want to be like Christ. I want to be used fully and completely. 
I want to bleed like Jesus bled. God, burn that fire in our heart. And by grace, order our steps to fulfill it. God, come against the spirit of division in our church and in our hearts. Come against the temptation to elevate self. Come against the tendency that we have to say, me first. God, today, make us new. New from the inside out. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.